Well, welcome to the Values Driven Productivity Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Mankin, and the purpose of this podcast is to help you make meaningful progress on things that matter. On today's episode, Chris Horst, who is the VP of Development at Hope International. He's an author. He is a father. He is a husband. He is a friend. He's an all-around great guy, and he's going to be talking about his upcoming book, Rooting for Rivals, which is about what it means for Christian faith-based organizations to pursue a posture of collaboration and ultimately the kingdom of God first. When all is lost and the world is losing to Chris Horst is the Vice President of Development at Hope International, where he employs his passion for advancing initiatives at the intersection of faith and work. And I actually work on Chris's team. I am a regional fundraiser in Houston, Texas for Hope International. And don't just look up to Chris as a professional leader in my life. Uh, Chris is someone to be modeled after. He loves his family well. He has three kids. Uh, He's a writer. He is a member of his church. He is the co-founder of dadcraft.com, which is a website that's equipping dads to uh, love their families well. He's been published in the Denver Post and Christianity Today. Uh, and he actually co-authored Mission Drift with Peter Greer, which is the book that precedes their upcoming book, uh, Rooting for Rivals, which comes out this summer. And Mission Drift was the book of the year in 2015 by Christianity Today. He also co-authored Entrepreneurship for Human Flourishing, which is a book about the role of business in the advance of the kingdom. Uh, He is an accomplished guy. And what I love about their upcoming book that Peter and Chris wrote, Rooting for Rivals, is uh, just how much it grates against my own pride. Uh, Being even a member of a faith-based organization, it can be so easy to let pride skew the way that I see other organizations as competition, when in reality, uh, other organizations are allies in this work of seeing the love of God uh, impact the world uh, for the glory of God. And whether you work for a Christian organization or not, whether you are a Christian or not, uh, my hope with this conversation is that you walk away uh, more inclined to view other people in your life less of a competition, less as competitors, and more as potential allies towards achieving what we could not achieve on our own. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Chris Horst about rooting for your rivals. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking some time to be on the podcast. My first question is just about Hope International. Who is Hope and why do you still work at Hope? I think that answer to that question goes back to my childhood. I grew up in a home with an older brother with special needs and would spend a lot of my weekends with the Special Olympics community as a buddy, uh, helping out, and just have always had a passion to serve the vulnerable in society. And I think the special needs community particularly are, are really vulnerable people. And coming out of undergrad, my hunt for a job was really framed by my desire to serve the vulnerable. But something that I realized over the course of my adult life was that my older brother didn't need charity. 
he, even though he struggles with a lot of the things that are easy for me and easy for, for many of your listeners, uh, he's unable to read and unable to drive. He also, in spite of those challenges, has a lot of incredible gifts and abilities. And I always saw him that way and saw the special needs community that way as a community of people that have gifts and abilities uh, that are worth worthwhile and, and beautiful in offering to our society and making the places that we live richer. But I, I think that we, we look at those that are different from ourselves often and those who are really vulnerable as people that have needs, which they do. Uh, but when we define them that way, we, we miss that they have so much they can offer to us. And so one of the greatest gifts my brother ever, ever received wasn't charity, but was the opportunity to work at Costco, uh, which he's been there now 19 years. He, he loves his work at Costco, has been promoted a few times and, and now is a, a favorite among the customers and employees at the Costco where he works. He, he loves Costco so much, he actually bought a home that shares a property border with his Costco so we can walk uh, through his backyard to work. Uh, but seeing the way that, that job has created opportunities for him to flourish, to use his God-given gifts and abilities, to be known in the community, not by his limitations, but, but by his strengths, uh, seeing that through the lens of my brother has been a really important foundation in my life and in, in seeing the way we think about poverty, too. And the same thing that's true in, in Matthew's life is true in our lives, and it's true for people living in places like Haiti and Congo and India, where we, we might look at them and think uh, that they have the, the deck stacked against them. Uh, we might think that they have all sorts of limitations and challenges, and those things are, are not true. Are those things are true? But they also have gifts and abilities, and a lot of times our charity undermines the fact that those people too, just like us, were created in the image of God. And so I've stayed working at Hope because that's that's the principle that undergirds all that we do. In 16 countries around the world, Hope and our partners provide opportunities for men and women, uh, like my brother Matthew, uh, in those communities to use the gifts and abilities that they have by providing opportunities for them to start and expand small businesses, to provide for their families, to, by providing savings accounts and access to a, a safe place to save their money as a to prevent against financial shocks that might occur, and with training that's rooted in Scripture that allows people to um, grow in the way that they lead their businesses and serve in their communities. And all of that is rooted in our belief that uh, it is God that, that said that a man can gain the whole world and still forfeit his soul. And we believe at Hope that as we are serving vulnerable people, just like uh people here in the communities where we live, that it doesn't matter if material prosperity increases and we we move into a better home and and have better education. As we do those things, if we don't, uh, if we don't recognize that, that our world is more than our material possessions, uh, we might fall victim of gaining the whole world and forfeiting our soul. And so as we serve in the communities where we work, we aim to introduce people to the only one who is able, able to dry every tear and make us whole, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. And we do that integrated into all of the, the work that we do and the places where, where Hope operates. Yeah, yeah and, and what's so interesting about you, too, is you're, 
like you could just end the story there and you would be an amazing human being like your role at hope and what we're getting to do together around the world is just such a gift in and of itself. But you also have this other side of you as an author who you've been able to write books and, uh, you've written multiple books, but your upcoming book rooting for rivals definitely is in step with the work that you do. Um, but why now, why write rooting for rivals now in this moment? It was a, a few years ago that a, an executive leader at a large philanthropic foundation in Tennessee was meeting with my co-author, Peter, and shared that he had three different nonprofit organizations, all in Bible translation, approach him, approach him as a member of this foundation to ask for money. Uh, the challenge was that all three of those organizations asked him to fund uh, Bible translation for the exact same language. Unbeknownst to each other, these organizations were approaching him for money to fund the exact same project. And he asked them over the course of the meetings if they knew about these other organizations that were pursuing the same exact translation efforts. And they said they didn't. And and that experience is not just something that that we've identified as true within the Bible translation sector, but it's true within all areas of culture that faith-based organizations specifically, and that's who we've written the book to. Uh, we, we might consider each other friends and allies in this work, but the way we interact with one another, we more often with our actions treat each other like rivals. And we aren't sharing, we aren't working together, and we're acting like there's this fixed pie and limited resources that we all have to clamor over. And that working together or linking arms might indicate that, A, we agree with exactly the way our quote-unquote rival organizations are are operating. We might affirm everything they believe. Uh, we might practice everything they practice. Or that if we do partner with them or work with them, we might be somehow losing market share. And so Peter and I decided to write Rooting for Rivals because we think the moment is now for faith-based organizations and Christian leaders to stop viewing each other as rivals and start seeing each other as Christ sees us, which is as one body. And one of the uh, theologians we quote early in the book is a gentleman by the name of Ajith Fernando. He's a Sri Lankan uh, theologian, and he says that Christians are losing the ability to use the metaphor body of Christ. He said, we act like there are two or three or hundreds of bodies of Christ, but there isn't. We know in Scripture uh, that there's one body of Christ. And so we wrote this book because we think it's the right timing to make the case for why partnership, collaboration, open-handedness, generosity, why these are the right postures for Christian faith-based uh, organizations and their leaders. And as we pursue our work with that posture, uh, with that vantage point, we believe it's not just going to, to mean great things for our organizations, but it's going to mean even greater things for the world and for the kingdom uh, when we put down our organizational boundaries and work together. Yeah, and I'd love to hear even just a few more stories of just collaboration that you have uncovered, encouraging stories of collaborations that you've uncovered even in the process of, of writing the book. Well, the one that I have been most inspired by is the story I just shared, which is of these Bible translation organizations that didn't know about each other's efforts. Because the story didn't end there. Uh, when that foundation executive shared with the three organizations that they were doing the exact same work, 
uh, one of the things that transpired as a result of that is that they began to work together and they, they formed a joint initiative called Illuminations and began to share resources and introduce each other to shared donors and began to to use similar systems and began to meet together regularly, something that they hadn't been previously doing. So to get today, a group of the 10 largest Bible translation organizations meet together once a month and talk about progress and talk about where they still need to um, work together to translate the Bible into new languages, where they're duplicating efforts. And the result of this is that before this effort began, in, individually, these organizations were all saying it was going to take until the year 2150, until the scriptures were translated into every language. So, you know, the number varied a little bit, the year varied a little bit, but that was essentially what they were all saying was 2150. And now, as a result of beginning to work together, they've been able to chop 117 years off of that estimate. And, and now together, these organizations believe that they can together translate the scriptures into every major language uh, by 2037, uh, or sorry, by 2033. So over the course of, of just working together, uh, they've chopped off 117 years from their wow. projections. And that's the, sort of, that's the sort of impact we think is possible if leaders take the posture of humility uh, and the posture of collaboration and generosity that these leaders have and decide to work together. So Rooting for Rivals is a follow-up to a previous book, Mission Drift, that you and Peter wrote. And for those who haven't read it, Mission Drift is all about what it means to stay true to your evangelical mission and not compromise on that mission over time. And you give a lot of examples of organizations that have compromised that mission over time. So I wonder if you see any conflict between staying true to your mission and also pursuing collaboration and how you would explain how Rooting for Rivals is even a follow-up to Mission Drift if there is any conflict there. Taking on a posture of, of rooting for your rivals and working with other organizations, those that share your beliefs and those that don't, um, is not the same as approving and affirming everything that those organizations and their leaders say and, and, and believe. I think it's critical that as we think about mission drift, we not lose sight of the fact that uh, our organizations should be unique. And as evangelical faith-based nonprofit leaders, uh, we believe that we have something unique to offer the world and our uniquely evangelical conviction its distinctiveness uh, as organizations. So when you look at the Old Testament and you see the way in which Israel would partner with pagan kingdoms uh, nearby, often the way that they did that resulted in correlating drift in the people of Israel's convictions and, and practices and beliefs. So I, I do think it's important to recognize the tension is there and to be wise and discerning in how you partner. Uh, but I think we all interact with organizations and, and leaders who we might not agree with on everything. I mean, even in the places where hope works, we are partnering in a sense and working with local government authorities, central banks, other microfinance institutions, other, um, uh, other nonprofit organizations already. And, and that partnership exists in a sense, um, even, even before thinking about rooting for rivals. And, and so as we do that, the thing that we've attempted to do at Hope and what we encourage in Rooting for Rivals is uh, that leaders are, are wise and discerning about the ways in which they create partnerships, but that it can be done. 
Uh, it can be done even when we don't agree on everything. And goodness, in the, the places where we work uh, and in the, the types of organizations that your listeners are involved in, there are all sorts of things we can disagree about from, from really, really fundamental and significant down to the most my, you know, minute details. And we just have to find ways to say, like, here's where our lines are. And even as we hold uh, steady to who we are, our unique identity, uh, we're also willing to take risks in how we partner with organizations that may not line up with us on those things. And, and we're clear that as we do so, we're not changing who we are because of working mm-hmm. with them. And I imagine even as you were writing this book, when you're thinking about this on an organizational level, I'm sure you also had to come face to face with your individual conviction about how to do this better, how to root for your own rivals. And so I even wonder for you personally, what is the greatest barrier to this kingdom first mentality in your own life? And then how are you working or praying towards overcoming it? Well, I, I struggle with pride and that's my, I would say my root sin. It's been called the deadliest of the the seven deadly sins. And C.S. Lewis said it's the source of all uh, other sins, and and I agree with him that it's it's a serious obstacle for all people, and and I think it's a unique challenge for me. And so specifically, the issue of pride is one that gets in the way of me partnering with other leaders and hope partnering with other organizations. I remember a time earlier earlier in my tenure with Hope where I went and gave a presentation to a group of potential donors, and the last slide of my presentation compared hope dollar for dollar to a bunch of our peer organizations working in different sectors. And so I compared and contrasted hope's approach to child sponsorship organization and an anti-human trafficking organization and a clean water organization and went through and said, you know, this is how much it costs dollar per dollar for them to serve one person a year and for us to serve one person a year. And, and there may be some, elements of that slide, which can create interesting questions and discussions for leaders. But doing so on one slide in a presentation for a bunch of donors was such a crass way of elevating and sort of bragging about Hope's approach and our efficiency uh, in a way that really wasn't an apples-to-apples comparison and in a way that was honestly, as I think back to preparing that slide, was rooted in nothing more than pride. Uh, and it was rooted in a, in a desire to castigate our peers uh, and elevate ourselves. And and that's the sort of approach that, that donors and leaders should challenge at every turn. And and I as I think back to that, I, I think about the way it felt when I gave the presentation and some of the questions that came up afterward. And it, it stirred up all of the wrong things. And it stirred up all of the wrong conversations. And if I had used that time instead of slamming uh, our quote-unquote rivals um, to, to elevate them and celebrate the ways that we are, we believe that working alongside them is important and significant to our work and that um, people having access to clean water and, and not having, the, having a legal system that, that fights human trafficking, how those are things that support the work and efforts that we have at Hope International – how much more so would have that been a motivating conversation and driven people toward the fruit of the spirit and not toward the vices, which I I think is a a real telltale sign 
of, of when we are getting it wrong. Yeah, it's amazing too, just the journey you've been on since, since that presentation, because just working on your team, this is something that you're cultivating a culture of what it means to be open-handed in our work and to see just how God has grown you in that direction is amazing. Even to the point where you're willing to release a book that puts your name on this philosophy. Uh, so I'm really grateful for that. And even with our fundraising team specifically, cause you're, you've spoken a lot to the organization as a whole um, and what it could look like for a lot of organizations to work together. Um, but I would love for you to just share even with the, within our fundraising team, how you are, pursuing open-handedness uh, on a day-to-day basis? One way we're doing it, and it's not perfect, but is is a, a little bit of a, a way of holding us accountable to doing this is, is we have a, a strategic plan unique to our development team. And as a team, one of the things that we've held ourselves accountable to is, is making introductions and recommendations to, other, to our donors, to, to other nonprofit organizations at least once a quarter that in our conversations and meetings with donors, that instead of talking exclusively about what God is doing through hope and the great things that are happening through hope around the world, that we would be quick to share about how we see God showing up in other organizations, in our peers, and, and to be quick in those conversations to, to elevate and celebrate the unique ways that other organizations are working in our world. And again, I think that there's this in the upside-down way of the kingdom there's something about doing that which is so freeing, and I can relate, or I can, um, I can just share from my own experience that moving from a place of competition and closed-fistedness to open-handedness and generosity, it's just a lot more fun way to operate. And and in our relationships that we have the privilege of um, of having with our our supporters and donors they find it to be life-giving and energizing too when they recognize that we are more than just a talking head for the organization whose business card we happen to carry. Because ultimately, uh, our identity as Christians starts not in the the business cards that we carry, but in the, the blood of Jesus. And as we start to point people to our bigger identity as part of the big K kingdom and not our little empire within it, uh, it really is life giving for for everybody, and and is a lot more mm, fun. So true. And even in my own journey to hope, before I even worked at Hope, I was working at another organization, and got to be the beneficiary of Hope's open handedness. And that you and the development team invited me to be a part of a retreat and learn along with with you. And that's been something that has been a marker of of the Hope culture for a long time. And I can see that even continually growing as we move forward to include not just the sharing of donors, but also uh, other reps from organizations and just learning together and pursuing excellence together with other organizations has been such a gift. And I wonder though, cause you and I both work for a faith-based organization. I'm sure that not everyone listening works for a faith-based organization and maybe wondering how this applies to them, this kingdom first mentality that you're talking about. So what, what kind of wisdom do you have for someone who's going to read Rooting for Rivals who may or may not be um, a part of a Christian organization? Well, one of the primary sources we used in the book was uh, a resource that pre, predated us by uh, a lot and, and predated Hope International by a lot as well, and that's The Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, the Seven Deadly Sins 
is not an inspired list. It's not a list that is all inclusive uh, of all things that we as human beings wrestle with, the vices that um, lurk at our, lurk behind our backs and in our hearts. But the Seven Deadly Sins uh, has been around for a long time. The list was developed initially, it's believed, around 350 uh, A.D., and so for the last 1,700 years, this list of the seven deadly sins has become a really helpful diagnostic for people of all faith traditions, frankly. Uh, I don't even think you need to be a Christian to find the, the list helpful. It's shown up in popular culture and movies uh, as, a, as a way of examining who we are in our most honest moments. And so I think the examination of the vices and the corresponding virtues is a really helpful diagnostic for all of us. Again, it's not a perfect list. Uh, it's not an inspired list. Uh, but I think it's, its staying power tells us something about the human condition. So I think the book's treatment of the seven deadly sins, the, the basically the bulk of the book, looks at how each of those deadly sins and the corresponding virtues can be cultivated in our own hearts and lives, as well as in the organizations where we work. I think I think those um, that th- that list can be something helpful for people regardless of of where they work. And in fact, a lot of the case studies that we use in the book come from outside the Christian faith based nonprofit sector. Uh, one that jumps to mind is the story of Robert Mondavi. Uh, Robert Mondavi is considered the father, the godfather of the Napa Valley. He's a winemaker who very early on said he wanted to be part of something bigger than creating a a great winery. So when he went to Italy and traveled the world, learning the very best practices and secrets of, of growing uh, a great winery uh, and, and developing the world's best um, wines, instead of keeping what he learned to himself, he began bringing together neighboring winery owners in the Napa Valley and saying, here's everything I've learned. And so he shared all of what might be considered trade secrets with his direct competitors and said, I, I want to be a part of building something bigger than just a great winery. And and he saw beyond the boundaries of his organization. So I think his example of, of really putting the Napa Valley on the map as a region, as a place that's like the American wine destination is a great example of a leader who, though he's he's was not a Christian, uh, he saw the value of, of leading in a generous way and leading in an open-handed way, uh, and in a way that saw impact and saw um, the success of his endeavors as defined by more than the success of the organization that he owned and managed specifically. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I'm curious, too, just with the, the, the tangible takeaways from the book, as anyone reads it, what is one hope that you and Peter have for what someone will do after they finish reading your book? I'm not trying to be cute here, but my, our biggest hope would be that readers would come away rooting for their rivals. And I think rooting for our rivals is not the sole metric for whether or not our organizations are generous, whether we're open-handed in the way that we're leading, but it's a pretty good one. If that's happening, chances are there are a lot of other things happening as well. And, and it would be our hope that all sorts of efforts, like the one that I shared about the Bible translation organizations, would spawn out of this, this book. And, and I know it's not going to come just because of our book. I know it's not going to become just because of our sort of advocating for this. Uh, even as we were getting close to publication, uh, we learned about a really exciting effort called uh, 
every campus, which was a joint effort launched by InterVarsity and Crew, uh, two of the largest campus Christian ministries in the country, uh, where they said, instead of just talking about where we have campus ministries, uh, we want to start talking about where there are no campus ministries. And so if you go to everycampus.us, it's another example of a joint effort by two organizations that for a long time considered each other rivals. They said, we might not agree on everything. We might not work exactly the same way. A club from Crew might look a little different than a campus club from InterVarsity, but we think that the gospel is worth working together. And so rather than just going to all the same campuses, uh, what if we decided to instead uh, work to, to make sure that every campus is served by one of the Christian ministries? And now other uh, smaller organizations, campus ministries have joined up with them uh, and are working together to ensure that um, Christian ministries are serving college students at every campus in the country. And that's the sort of thing that it would be our hope we'd see more of. Amazing. Amazing. Well, one of my last questions for you is a question I've asked uh, many other guests, but I'd love to just know one practical thing that you're doing to make progress on something you care about, whether it be towards rooting for rivals or something else. I'd love to just know some of your something practical that someone can take away from, from this that they can put into practice themselves to make some progress in their life. Well, Blake, you are the, the guru on this. And I think in terms of uh, everyday habits that leaders can practice in their lives and work, the resources that you've listed and recommended on your blog and in previous interviews are all things that I would suggest your listeners check out. So I'm going to go a little different direction with this and share one thing that as someone who by many, in many respects is um, an established leader, uh, I work in you know an executive role for a large faith-based nonprofit. Uh, one of the things that, and practices um, that I think has been, most formative for me over the past five years has been serving as a uh, foster foster parent. And again, it's not um, a sort of a habit or a hack in a traditional sense, but serving as a, a foster parent for me has been one of the most grounding experiences that I've had as a leader because it's been a reminder of the triviality of my own problems and hangups and the enormity of God's power. And over the course of the last few years, as my wife and I have uh, now had five different um, foster placements, six, six kids that have lived in our home through those placements, it's, it's just been a gift in every sense of the word. And it's created challenges. It's created inconveniences of having a child enter our home for a period of time that uh, we're caring for and responsible for. But even as it's been, again, like an inconvenience, it's been an incredible gift because it's just reminded us of, of both how much we have and how God can somehow work in and through those broken and challenging and hard things to show us new sides of His goodness and His grace and His beauty in the lives of these precious children. And so I, I think it's you know, and someone who spends a lot of my time thinking about how I can be more efficient and be more practical and use uh, my gifts in the highest and best use, uh, foster care has sort of wrecked that for me. And, and it's wrecked that in a really good way. Not that I don't care about those things anymore, just the opposite. I mean, I care about them more than I ever have. 
but it's it's helped to disrupt the things that I hold dear that are not good. And and sometimes I, I think in my own efforts to be efficient, I end up becoming fairly insular and selfish and self-absorbed. Uh, and this is just my own journey, to be candid, that I've been on. And being in foster care is like this unglamorous, uh, really frustrating, really inefficient, really maddening sometimes way of, of reminding myself of, of God's goodness and, and of honestly of the triviality of my, my own problems. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time and for your insights and uh, for writing this book. It's an important book. Uh, how can people stay connect with, connected with you and how can uh, anyone who's listening get a hold of this book? Uh, they can go to at Chris Horst on Twitter to get connected to, to me and get connected to my blog and uh, website, hopeinternational.org is a great place if you want to learn more about the work that we're doing. And of course, you can buy the book now, pre-order it uh, at your favorite bookseller. It should be out in uh, July 2018. Well, thanks to Chris Horst for having a conversation around rooting for your rivals. If you'd like to see any resources or links to things mentioned in the show, visit the episode page at valuesdrivenproductivity.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show almost anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you have a spare moment, please do leave the show a review on iTunes. I would love to know what you think, and it would also be really helpful for the show. Please do join the email list, valuesdrivenproductivity.com slash subscribe. As a member of this tribe, you'll get brand new content delivered directly to your inbox. This is going to be a post, podcast, today's to do, which is just a short action you can take to make meaningful progress in your life. And then my monthly top 10, which is just a list of things that will be helpful resources for you along your journey. Well, that just about does it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the show. Until next time, make meaningful progress on things that matter. We'll make it, we'll make it.